0: book of Hebrews open before you once again, um, and actually, uh, this is going to be one of those evenings when, if you wouldn't mind, flicking backwards and forwards quite a lot in your Bible. As you can see, and as you've heard in the reading uh, at the end of chapter one, the author of this written sermon is going to take us through lots of texts. And so we're going to do uh, some some walking through the Old Testament along with him. But before we do that, uh, some of you will have been here this morning, others of you uh, perhaps not. And, of course, this section of Hebrews builds on the opening four verses of chapter 1. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how they connect backwards to those verses but also how they look forwards to what we will lord willing have a look at next lord's day morning and so i want to just briefly direct your attention to chapter 2 verse 1 which is not one that we've read as yet there we read this therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it we're going to talk much more about that next lord's day But I want to say, just as we begin this evening, that if you, like most of us, find yourself prone to drifting, prone to feeling the weight of the pressures of life, the pressures of a culture around us which wants to draw us away from the Lord, the pressures of friendships and relationships with those who do not know the Lord Jesus, who are not his people. The pressures of the daily routine and the daily grind that make it so hard sometimes for us to listen to God's word, to look to the Lord Jesus. If that's you in any way, and if you feel within yourself that temptation, that tendency to drift away from the Lord Jesus, to have your hold on your faith loosened as you go through the week, then this evening's text is for you. All of the riches that are offered to us here at the end of chapter 1 about Jesus as the Son are meant to keep us from drifting. They are not simply... Theology that's way up in the sky, it's not simply interesting ways of applying the Old Testament to help us understand Jesus better. The purpose of all that we walk through here in chapter 1, verses 5 to 14, is to keep us from drifting away in our faith. And what we see then is that the way to keep from drifting in the Christian faith is simply this— it is to deepen our knowledge of who Jesus is and to understand more deeply what it means that he is named the Son in this text. So that's what we're going to do uh, just now. Uh, Some of you probably met over the past weeks uh, my mother-in-law, who was with us here for nearly two months. We sent her back uh, just about a fortnight ago. Uh, Ruth Ann was her name, but she's known as Grammy around the house. And Grammy has been much missed uh, in many ways. And not least, after the kids go to bed, Grammy was uh, used to sitting in the rocking chair in our lounge room knitting. And she likes to knit all kinds of things. And so she would sit there night after night knitting. And we miss we miss that uh, with her gone now. But that idea of knitting and connecting stitch by stitch, so closely together, that is what we need to grasp in terms of the way that Hebrews unfolds its argument section by section. I don't know if you've spent much time in Hebrews, but if you've not, then this is hopefully one way that you can go away uh, even after this evening, even after today, and read for yourself and understand for yourself more of what Hebrews has to offer for us. Let me show you what I mean in terms of knitting and stitching sections together. This morning we finished with verses 1 to 4, which in most translations uh, say something like this, "...having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs." Do you know that this, these four verses are some of the most carefully composed verses of the entire New Testament? And that in the original, there's a very intentional, very measured way in which verse four ends. Ends like this, with two words that translate into English as three. He, well, four, sorry. He has inherited name. Jesus has inherited a name. It is the word name that finishes verse 4. That Jesus has inherited a name. And that is meant to put in place a stitch, which helps us to transition from these opening verses into what follows. Because what follows in verses 5 to 14 is all about the name. It's all about the name Son. And so the remainder of chapter 1... Helps us understand what it means that Jesus has inherited the name Son. Look at the end of verse uh, at, at the end of chapter one, verse fourteen. What do we find there? And here it's reflected very nicely, even in the word order in most English translations. Those who are to what inherit salvation. Well, guess what that sets up for us. If you cast your eyes down into chapter two. Chapter 2 is going to be all about the salvation that we inherit through Jesus who has inherited the name Son. And so it goes. Well, let me just show you one more so you can read ahead on your own uh, in, in this week to come perhaps. Look at the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2 ends with verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a, and here's the key, here's the stitch, This is the knitting together the bits. Merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And do you know what happens over the next several chapters of Hebrews? Chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. Those two ideas of Jesus as a merciful and faithful high priest, in reverse order, are unfolded for us. First chapter 3 on through 4.14 tells us what it meant For Jesus to be a faithful, a trustworthy high priest. And then from chapter 4, verse 14, on through at least chapter 5, verse 10, it's all about how Jesus is a merciful high priest. These little hook words, stitching it together, giving us a clue as to what's about to come. That's the way the author of Hebrews unfolds his argument for us. And so I give you that as a way to read Hebrews, uh, even on your own, perhaps, with a little bit more insight. But also, as we come back to chapter 1 in our text this evening, to show you that very clearly we are meant to pay attention to the name that Jesus has inherited. And the name is that of a son. So that is the main idea of the remainder of chapter 1, the name that Jesus has inherited, which is the name of a son. What does Shakespeare say? What's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell sweet. Are names arbitrary? Are names simply titles? Could we interchange names? Well, not here. Not here. Here, the name son is the one that we have to keep front and center. And it's what will help us to understand why, as we move through these verses, seven different Old Testament texts, seven of them, are cited. And all of them relate to the fact that Jesus, as the Son, is greater than angels. That becomes the focus in this section. This entire section fills out the glory of the inherited name of Son, Now, at this point, we need to make a careful distinction. Some of you might say, in fact, one of you said to me after the service this morning, insightfully, wasn't Jesus always the Son of God? We believe that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in glory, one God in three persons, and wasn't Jesus always God the Son from eternity past? Isn't he the eternal Son of God? To which we say, Yes, and amen, absolutely, that is what Scripture teaches. So what is the author of Hebrews doing, then, we must ask, in telling us that Jesus has inherited the name Son, that something actually changes when Jesus is raised from the dead and ascends to heaven and takes his seat on that throne at the right hand of the Majesty on high. What is happening there in the title, Son, that is bestowed upon him? It's not that Jesus is suddenly uh, appearing on the scene and he wasn't there before. It's that the eternal Son of God is now named as Son in a very specific way. He is given a new place to sit from which to exercise his ministry for us, to keep us from drifting to help us in the Christian life to exercise His saving power even more gloriously. That's what it means for Jesus to inherit this name, the Son. He was declared the Son of God in power at His resurrection. The Apostle Paul says the same thing as he opens the epistle to the Romans in the opening verses of chapter 1 of Romans when he says that Jesus was declared the Son of God in power by the Holy Spirit when He was raised from the dead. That's the same idea that the author of Hebrews holds before us here. And so as we move through, briefly this evening, these seven different citations of Old Testament texts, we want to ask each one, of each one, how does this help us understand what it means to say that Jesus is the Son seated on the throne? And further, how does that help us to cling more tightly to our faith as Christians, so that we would not drift away. We would not be those who drift away. Do you see how carefully structured this section is from verse 5 to verse 14? Look how it opens in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say? How does it finish? In verse 13, the last citation. And to which of the angels has he ever said? What do you think the author wants us to answer there? To those rhetorical questions. Well, the answer he's expecting is to none. To no angel has he ever said, you are son. To no angel has he ever said, verse 13, sit at my right hand. Only to Jesus. Only to Jesus has he addressed these words as the son. Which makes the son far greater than any angel. And as we see that careful structure and we see that idea continuing on into chapter two, that Jesus is greater than the angels, we must step back for a moment and ask ourselves, what difference does that make? Why is that such a big deal for the author of the Hebrews to impress upon us with all of these scriptures again and again, that Jesus is greater than the angels? Why is that a big deal? Well, here's why it's a big deal. It is a very big deal because, as we'll see next week in chapter 2, the angels were those through whom critical revelation in the Old Testament was delivered. The angels were messengers. Messengers who attended the revealing of God's old covenant revelation. But Jesus who is so much greater than the angels, is the one through whom God has brought the new covenant, revelation, and even more, the new covenant blessings of redemption to all who cling to him by faith. That's why right here at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, right here in chapter 1, our author insists that Jesus is greater than the angels. Because if we don't grasp that, we will not be in a position later on to understand how perfectly suited this Jesus is as son seated on the throne to be a new covenant mediator for us. That is part of what is being established here in these opening verses of chapter 1. There's really no contest, is there? Of course Jesus is greater than the angels. As we'll see, the angels don't come even close to Jesus. But that's the reason for the comparison, the similarity that relates to the covenant revelation. Is it old or is it new? And we see the author doing this again in in further uh, chapters. Just have a look at chapter 3. Who is Jesus compared and contrasted to in chapter 3? Well, the heading of the text tells us, doesn't it? It's Jesus is greater than Moses. Well, why do we go from angels to Moses? Well, we're told in chapter 3 is because Moses was one who ruled over God's old covenant household in a faithful way. But how much more does Jesus now rule over God's people in the new covenant? Do you see the pattern? These are not just randomly, arbitrarily chosen comparisons. They are all driving at helping us understand Jesus as the new covenant mediator. So what's the payoff from this passage, even before we look at these Old Testament texts? I want to impress this upon you because there is more, there is more to see here than we will see this evening. And I I hope, I pray, that you'll go away this week and that you'll go back and you'll read around the contexts of these Old Testament texts which are cited. And you'll think about how they relate to Jesus. And as you do so, I'd suggest that there is a payoff in at least these three ways. First of all, when we see Jesus as the Son, when we see him as the exalted, glorified Son, we have a greater knowledge of his glory and his power and his grace toward us than ever before. We see Jesus as more exalted and we're enabled to embrace him and to worship him more. So as you seek to stir up your affections, as you spend time in prayer this week, as you seek to worship daily in your own time of devotion... Look to Jesus as the Son who is exalted. Look to these texts to help deepen your sense of who Jesus is so that you might worship him even more deeply. Secondly, it shows us a way to go back and read the Old Testament with fresh eyes, with eyes where we put on the spectacles that are Jesus-shaped. They are sun-shaped. And we then go back to these psalms, back to these Old Testament texts, and we see them with new eyes as they reveal more to us than ever before because they're telling us about who Jesus is. And finally, and this perhaps the most important one that I want us to come away with this evening, is this. When we think of Jesus as Son in all these ways held out to us in verses 5 to 14, we begin to see him more as a perfectly suited perfectly suited, perfectly situated Savior who is at work even now for you, at work even now for you, you who are in danger of drifting, you who every moment, every day are in danger of drifting. This is the one who holds on to you, who exercises his grace and his power for you. That's what we are shown in these texts. So let's look briefly at some of the texts that are held out for us. They basically fall into three sections. First, in verses 5 and 6, there are three different citations. Then in verses 7 to 12, we have three more. And finally, in verse 13, our seventh and climactic citation. We'll take them in those groupings. First of all, verses 5 and 6. If you have a Bible that gives little references at the bottom, you'll already see this, but perhaps perhaps you don't have one. So I'll say as we go, where are these texts drawn from? And it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing that this preacher, the preacher who wrote this sermon, expects his people to know these texts so well that they sound familiar Even if he cites simply a verse or two, a phrase or two, it's a humbling thing for us to realize perhaps how little we know our Bibles. But it's also an encouraging thing, I think, to stir us up to know them even better. The first one comes from Psalm 2, which we sang earlier this evening. Psalm 2, verse 7. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as we sang that Psalm, perhaps you realized that this is a Psalm which is a Davidic Psalm, a Psalm about that Old Testament King of Israel, David. Would you, would you keep a finger in Hebrews and turn briefly back to Psalm chapter two, Psalm two rather. In Psalm two, we see one who is referred to as the Lord's Anointed. The peoples of the earth, the nations are raging against him. They want to overthrow him from his position of power. And yet, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision with all the power, with all the pretended authority of the nations, with all of the derisive, hateful rejection of the God of the universe who made heaven and earth. In the face of all of that, what does the Lord do? Well, he says, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That is strong language. In its original context, it was Yahweh setting David on the throne of Israel in order to rule justly over his people among nations who wanted to destroy the people of God, who wanted to cast off the bonds of Yahweh. But even then, even then, David was only a small illustration, a small picture of a greater king who was to come. So much of the Old Testament narrative drives this home. We know this, and yet we need to go back and read our Old Testaments again to realize that the theme of a king like David, one who would sit upon the throne and rule righteously and justly for the good of Yahweh's people, was something that was needed oh so much more greatly than it was ever realized in the history of Israel. Because what did David do? David fell. David sinned. David was not the perfect king. And so one who would be a greater David was needed. Solomon, his son, was, was the next to come along, wasn't he? And he was glorious. How glorious was he? With wisdom, with riches. The nations of the earth bringing tribute to Solomon. And yet even Solomon in all his glory fell. He too was not that king which could perfectly fulfill what we read in Psalm 2. It was only the Lord Jesus who lived a blameless life. Who dying took his throne first on a cross and then in glory and was declared to be the Son of God in power, having risen from the dead and ascended on high. And that, Hebrews 1.5 tells us, that is who Jesus is. He is the Son of Psalm 2.7 who has been seated by God the Father on the throne who will rule over the nations. What ought to be our response if we have Psalm 2 in mind? Look at verse 12, Psalm 2. How do we respond to this one who has died, been raised from the dead, seated on high? Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Bow the knee to Him. Show that you submit your life to Him. Have no more pretensions to a life of autonomy, a life of ruling your own destiny. Instead, bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. Kiss the son, lest, verse 12 says, he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you see how all of that the author of Hebrews has compressed into one phrase in verse 5? You are my son, today I have begotten you. And do you see, brothers and sisters this evening, how bringing that to mind shows us what a glorious king we have in Jesus, the son who's seated on the throne. What a powerful king we have, ruling for our benefit. What a gracious and forgiving king we have. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so right from the start this evening, we need to say that if you are one who has never bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus, then you are in the position of those nations of Psalm 2 who are attempting vainly to cast off the bonds of God of the universe and to rule your own life. And you are called to account by this verse because it's the Lord Jesus who is the Son that has been seated on the throne. And it is to him that you must turn. As savior for your sin. From your sin. As lord of your life. As the king who rules over all. Who offers you refuge. At the foot of his throne. That's Psalm 2. In verse 5. Psalm uh, verse 5 goes on doesn't it. Or again I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. This is a citation from Second Samuel. 2nd Samuel chapter 7 verse 14. We don't have time to unpack that fully tonight, but can I commend that to you to read? That narrative in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 where David who wants to build a house for Yahweh the Lord is told by Yahweh, "No, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to set your descendants upon the throne everlastingly." And again, who is that? who is david 's descendant who takes the throne? Well, yes, initially it 's Solomon, but Solomon dies, Solomon sins, Solomon falls. He is not the one truly ultimately of whom second Samuel seven speaks instead hebrews one five tells us it was Jesus, and then Jesus was in view as that perfect king who would rule in an everlasting house that Yahweh himself would establish for David. Do you see the theme of the Davidic king that is being held before our eyes here by the author of Hebrews? Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now we're back to the angels. But what is it that angels do? This citation, probably from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, the angels worship the Lord's anointed. And even more, Deuteronomy chapter 32, which comes at the end of Moses' glorious song celebrating the redemption that God has worked for his people in the Exodus and bringing them right up to the cusp of entering into the promised land. At the end of that song, it's the angels who worship Yahweh. They worship him. And what does Hebrews one six? Attribute that or ascribe that verse to it says that they are worshiping the Lord Jesus just as they worship Yahweh. So now they worship Jesus. If you have any doubts or if those you speak to ever have any doubts that the Bible actually claims that Jesus is God, take them to Hebrews chapter one. There is no escaping the fact that Hebrews chapter one again and again and again drives home the fact that Jesus is God. He is gloriously, majestically God. And even the angels worship Him. So the Davidic king is part of what it means for Jesus to be the true son, verses five and six. The son, that name of son that He has inherited means He sits perfectly and finally on the throne that was promised to David and His household in the Old Testament. The second section, verses 7 to 12, show us that the name Son also means that Jesus is an eternal and a righteous King. In verse 7, we read of the angels, he says, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. Again, what are angels for? First, they worship the Son, verse 6, but secondly, verse 7, and again later in verse 14, angels are ministers. They're messengers. And they are doing the bidding of the Lord. They are that far below the Son who is glorious. Verse 8, but of the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Do you see it again? Do you see in this citation from Psalm 45, which we also sang, how it begins. Your throne, who? Who's being addressed? Your throne, O God. This, Hebrews tells us, is speaking to Jesus. Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It is a throne that will never be shaken. It is a throne that will never be cast down. It is a throne that will never crumble. It is a throne that will remain forever and ever. Because Jesus rules as an eternal king. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of his kingdom. Unlike all the rulers of the nations, Jesus is incorruptible. He is perfectly righteous, perfectly just. He rules perfectly in his righteousness and uprightness. Verse 9, you have loved righteousness, and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There's more that we could say about those verses, but we need to move on to the final section and the climax of the citation that comes in verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet?" Here in verse 13, the seventh and final Old Testament citation, the author of Hebrews takes us to Psalm 110. It's not the first time that he has taken us there. We saw this morning, well, we might have heard this morning, although we didn't mention it, that when the author says in chapter 1, verse 3, after having made purification for sins, the sun sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the first signal for us if we have ears to hear. If we remember Psalm 110, that this psalm is going to play a major role in Hebrews' teaching about who Jesus is and what that means for us. And here again at the end of chapter 1, verse 13, we find it cited yet again, Psalm 110. It will be cited nearly a half dozen times in the coming chapters of Hebrews, both Psalm 100, verse 1, as here, and also Psalm 110, verse 4. Why? Why is that psalm so much of a focus for this preacher who wrote this sermon? Well, it's because Psalm 110, perhaps like nowhere else in the Old Testament, holds before us the fact that Yahweh's king, the true son of God, will not only be seated on the throne as a king, Psalm 110, verse 1. He will also be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. Jesus, as the Son, combines in his person the offices of priest and king perfectly. And that matters for us because as a perfect king, as a perfect priest, he rules perfectly for our Good. And he intercedes perfectly for us, drawing us again and again to the throne of grace where we find forgiveness, where we find mercy, where we find blessing. That's why, right from the start, Psalm 110 is so critical for the author of Hebrews. So who is Jesus? Jesus has inherited a great name and that name is the name Son. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the Son? Well, first of all, it means that he fully, perfectly fulfills all that the Davidic king was meant to fulfill in the Old Testament. Secondly, it means that he's an eternal king. His kingdom will never be shaken. And thirdly, he is a king and a priest who rules and ministers on our behalf. That's what it means according to Hebrews 1, to say that Jesus has taken his seat as a son. He's inherited the name of son. And the wonderful news for us is that as that one who has inherited the name son, Jesus is able to bestow the blessings of that inheritance upon you and upon me when we draw near to him by faith. Verse 14, the end of chapter 1. Are they, that is the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The one who has inherited name stands ready, willing, perfectly suited, and able to bestow that inheritance upon his people. An inheritance of salvation. So that we do not need to drift away. It's all in the name Son according to Hebrews chapter 1. There are depths and riches of Christology in Hebrews chapter 1, of what it means to answer the question, who is Jesus? And so I want to leave you this evening with this thought. What is in a name? What is in the name Son? Uh, one of the books that our children love uh, is called Little Lord Fauntloroy. I don't know if you've ever read that, or read that perhaps uh, to a child. Uh, But in that story, there's a young boy who lives in America uh, by the name of Cedric Errol. He lives in New York City, and he lives with his mother. And at one point, uh, he's told that he has inherited a fortune. And he finds out that he's inherited a fortune because he is the heir to uh, someone who is a member of the landed gentry here in England. And so he gets a ship, takes the journey across from America to England, and takes up this title, Little Lord Fauntleroy. He is the Lord Fauntleroy. He didn't know that title before. It meant nothing to him. But as soon as he arrives, he is greeted with deference by everyone he sees because he now bears the name Lord Fauntleroy. It is the title and the name which brings with it an entire host of ideas, and that's the same for us this evening. The name that Jesus has inherited, the name of Son, brings with it so much that we need to understand, that we need to understand more deeply, perhaps, than we have yet to this point. And so can I encourage you this week, as you're in conversation in your family, With your friends, with one another, with those that you work with who do not know the Lord Jesus, see if you can't uh, work into your conversation something about Jesus so that you could answer the question, who is Jesus? Maybe you ask the question, maybe you pose the question, who is Jesus? And think back to Hebrews chapter 1 and the way that that enables us to answer that question more deeply perhaps than we ever have before. Who is Jesus? Yes, he's the Savior. Yes, he's saved us from our sins. Yes, he's the eternal Son of God. But Jesus is the Son seated upon the throne who has has inherited a great name. See if that might not make its way into your conversation this week with a deeper sense of reverence, a deeper sense of gratitude, a deeper sense of confidence that the Son sits upon the throne for you. Cling to him by faith. Look to him by faith so that you might not drift away. Let's pray together.